So last week, I don't know if I told you this, I, I woke up and I had like this sore throat and this stuffy nose. I've had that same thing all week. And I have no idea why. It's, it hasn't, usually colds, they kind of like, I'm going to kill you and then it gets better. This one, same thing every day. So for a week, I, I don't know if I'm dying or what, but it's, it's, it's not going away. It's the same thing. So if I sniffle and if I get lost in the middle of this message, whatever. Give me some grace. Be like Jesus. We'll be fine. Uh, don't forget, uh, today is Mom's Day off. And if you're a mom and you're looking to have a little time off, uh, Rice Ranch Park, 1 o'clock. They'll feed you, uh, pamper you. People will watch your kids. I'll be one of the people watching the kids, so you may want somebody else to watch your kids. <laughs> but I'll be out there for a little bit helping out and stuff. So don't forget, 1 o'clock. And if, and if you're a guy and you want to go help or if you're not a mom because we want moms takes time off, uh, and you want to go help out and watch kids, 1 o'clock, Rice Ranch Park, show up there, we'll all hang out, watch kids, I don't know, eat dirt, and we'll be like, I don't know what happened to him. He's going to be regular tomorrow, though. He's going to be a tough crowd today, I can tell. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll, I, I, just, I, I wrote something that I'm, that I'm reading to all the services, so I say the same thing and not you know, just kind of BS around this thing. Uh, last week, I don't know if you showed up to one of the other services. You may have got something, some political thing shoved into your windshield wiper. Uh, that was not us. We didn't do that. We don't hand out political things here like that. And, I mean, right now we're coming into probably one of the most heightened political seasons we've ever had. And America, I don't think I've ever really seen America divided like it is right now. And that, that's kind of, I think, the dangerous thing. And so, uh, you know, I know you come here to worship Jesus. You don't intend to have people to carpet bomb your cars with political statements and stuff. Uh, and so I'll just, I thought I would be a good time to tell you about what Element is and what we believe about stuff. So uh, Element, uh, first and foremost, we're a church that believes in Jesus. And so when I have time up here to preach to you about things, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm going to tell you who to look to, and that is, Jesus. Uh, I, again, we, we talk about Jesus because we believe that Jesus changes people's lives and Jesus brings us hope and life. And if I get any amount of time to talk to people about anything, that's what it's going to be about. Uh, and I believe if you follow Jesus, there are some convictions that's birthing our souls about the right course for any country. Now, having said, having said that, I'm going to probably say the most political thing I think I've ever said uh, up here. And if you ever want to argue and talk about politics, you can take me out to lunch. I'll let you anytime. All right. And we can argue all you want. It'll be be a whole lot of fun. Uh, I will tell you one thing that throughout history, if you look throughout history, you will notice uh, that a bigger government has never made people more secure or allowed for more freedom. It always does the exact opposite. Uh, the larger and more intrusive a government gets, the more freedoms people always lose. Now, uh, at, at one time, the church's job was to take care of the poor and the needy and those who needed help. And as government grows, the government begins to see its job is to be that that takes care of all of those needs. And when a government grows very large, it becomes a religion. People begin to worship it. They think government can solve all their needs, and it can't. They will always be let down because the government is run by men. And so we are to be those who always point to Jesus to take care of each other and take care of each other as best as we can in this. And so a church is a body of believers who live on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of talk today about economic meltdowns and all these things that are going to happen. You know what? If there is an economic collapse, I will tell you, you know who's supposed to take care of each other? We are. We're supposed to take care of each other. That's, that's how it works. You know, right now, Element, 350 of us, about, that's a pretty good start, okay? And I will tell you, it's, it's, a, it's a good community to be in. And it's not a handout. It's all of us walking forward, working together. But, you know, maybe something drastic does happen. But I will tell you that this is one of the best ways that we will learn how to truly be the church, 
is by taking care of each other and loving each other and, and doing it like that. So whatever happens, we're going to be together, and we're going to be okay, and we're always going to point to Jesus. So there you go. Having said that, uh, if, oh, oh, I got, one, I got a special announcement just for third service. It's not very exciting, but whatever. Uh, the lady who oversees our communion stuff, uh, she says in third service that it's, uh, people are, are like dropping like flies, helping. So if you would like to help do communion, could you let the people at the Welcome Center know? Uh, it's probably like once every six weeks. Uh, you, would, you just come in, you put the crackers there, you, the wine and the grape juice, and then after it's over, you take the plates back and you, and you put them away. That's, it's really simple. Probably take you 10 minutes. Uh, but she said it's hard to find people in third service to do that. So if you'd be willing to, just let the people at the Welcome Center know that. All right. We're doing this whole thing with the videos now, so i got to introduce myself as I talk. I always feel awkward about that. So, hi, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here. All right. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called Version. You click on Live. If you don't have a Live button, because apparently they're not supporting Androids as much anymore, you have a Live button on your iPhone. But if you have an Android, you can actually punch in the zip code, and it'll bring us up uh, by zip coding your smartphone, and you will get all the sermon notes and verses and stuff like that. Why don't you stand with me reading God's Word? This is Genesis 21, verse 5. And it says, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand uh, the miracles that you do, but more importantly, the things that you have placed just in front of our face. And so we would realize your provision that is here every day. And thank you and walk in the grace that you give us every single day. Amen. Have a seat. This is Genesis week 34. Uh, last week I told you this message was a two-parter, and last week was kind of like this whole rah-rah, build you up, because if I had like an hour and ten minutes to talk to you, these two would have gone together, would have built you up so you listened to the rest of it. And so just imagine, rah-rah-rah, and, and here we go with, with the rest of it. Cause it's, i got to get going because it's a little longer, and we don't want it to be a three-parter. <laughs> Or maybe you do. I don't know. Whatever. So if you want all to hear all of last week, uh, get the podcast, listen to it. I, I think you'll enjoy that, especially understanding what we talk about today. Uh, for if you weren't here last week, I'll do my best to get you up to speed in about two minutes. But two minutes is not the same as a half an hour. Plus, if you did sit through last week's, I don't want you to think, why didn't I just get the Cliff Notes version? Because you need the whole thing in there. And so last week we spoke about God and Jesus. Obviously, we always talk about God and Jesus and how all authority lies in him. And because that God has spoken his word, he has breathed life into the scriptures. They then have authority as well, but the authority comes from God. It's like the moon at night, how the moon shines. The illumination is not its own. It's actually a reflection from the sun. And so the same way, the scripture's authority comes from God. And so the scriptures are God revealing himself to us. And so the Bible is not primarily a book of commands to do. It's not primarily a book of doctrines to believe. It's not an owner's manual. Even though the Bible does have commands, it has materials involved for doctrines. Doctrine, but it's not mostly that. The scriptures basically are a story. It's a narrative. It has an arc to it. And part of what the doctrine of inspiration uh, has and involves for the scriptures is the belief that the Bible is primarily a story because God chose it to be a story. And we have to understand how this story carries authority because if you don't understand that, you will never understand the Bible and you'll always be frustrated by it because you're trying to put things on it that it is not trying to be. It's a story, an arc, narrative. All of history is part of 
God's great story. Everything in your life, all the way back to what we're looking at this week with Abraham and Sarah and all of that. I mean, why does Abraham have to wait 25 years for his promised son? You know, why did the Israelites sit in captivity for 400 years? You know, it all depends on the broader context of the story, that it is God's story. And this is always true. And when we come to our lives and we try to make our stories all about ourselves, we get very frustrated. We don't understand what's going on because our stories are not about us. In the end, our stories are all about God and his story and what he is doing. Now, last week I told you about N.T. Wright. Uh, I really like N.T. Wright. Uh, I do have a couple issues with him on atonement, which probably means nothing to you. But N.T. Wright says the Bible is kind of like a play. It has trajectory to it, it has, and it has five acts. So you have to know what the acts are and where you are in the story. Act one is creation. This is Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why stuff is here. That's why stuff is actually good, because God loves all of creation and all the stuff that he made, and it's all good. Then you hit Act 2, and Act 2 is the fall where where our sin comes into play and kind of destroys everything when violence and oppression and injustice into the world act two tells you things on the earth are not as they were supposed to be but god doesn't give up he redeems he fixes he restores which takes you to act three and act three begins with this guy we're looking at now named abraham God promises Abraham that he would become a people called Israel. And the whole promise was actually that I have not given up on all of this, Abraham. God says everything in Act 1, I'm not giving up. I'm actually moving forward with, with a plan. And so he takes Abraham and promises to give him a son, that all the people on the earth, Abraham, will be blessed through you and eventually by this boy. In Genesis 21, he gets that promised son because eventually through that line comes Jesus. Now open your Bibles to Genesis 21. That's kind of where we went last week. And so today and last week we saw that Abraham got his boy, but there's still a huge problem in the midst of Abraham getting his boy. And again, this is, you know, for you and I, maybe, you know, we surrender our wills and our lives to Christ, we follow him, and yet there's all this stuff that keeps coming up because of all this baggage that we went through, and it's still there. We still have got to deal with it. And so this is kind of Abraham. He's dealing with stuff. And the problem is not that Abraham is 100 and his wife is 90. You know, we might see that as a problem, but, but that's not it. The problem was a faith issue because 25 years before this, God promised Abraham and Sarah a son, and years prior to this, small faith and a big God caused him to do something dumb, as our small faith usually does. And so that they thought God was taking too long to fulfill his promise that God was going to forget about it or something. And so they decided to take matters in their own hands. And Abraham has sex with his wife's assistant, handmaid, secretary, Hagar, whatever you want to call her. And his wife, in a sense, offers her to Abraham and says, here, have sex with Hagar. And Abraham says, okay. <laughs> you know, just, just great. You know, they try to do it in their timing and not God's timing and so and so the secretary then has a son as well and his name is ishmael and abraham for 13 years believed that ishmael was the son of the promise that they had actually done it because abraham then made the story about them he made the story about ishmael but in the end the story is about god and what he is doing it's not our story it's his story and so God says, no, I am going to give you a promised son through your wife, Sarah. This is my story. So they actually get this boy, birth through Sarah. And this now causes a lot of issues, as you can imagine. You've got you know, a girlfriend with her baby and a wife with her baby. And there's all kinds of things that go on in this. When you start where we are in, in Genesis 21, verse 8, everybody's happy. It's the beginning of a, of a party. God is worshipped, but there's some tension in the story. So Genesis 21, verse 8 is where we start. And the child, that's Isaac, grew and was weaned. And 
Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, weaning is a good day. This means they're going to come off of breastfeeding. In this time, you would breastfeed kids as long as you could because there's a high infant mortality rate. A lot of people in this culture wouldn't even name their kids till they were two years old for fear of this child dying in the middle of it. And so, you know, I, I, I love small kids. Uh, anybody like small kids? They're awesome, right? Small kids have one major defect. You know what it is? They're loud. Okay, they're not. In our, in our GC, I, I love it when people bring kids to our GC, but, but I'll tell you, kids think the funnest thing is to run around and just scream. That's, 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 that's like the game. I don't know if you're in church and you bring your kid into church, and they're like, like hey, Dad, how's it going? And you're like, shh, oh, yeah, whisper, I got it. I mean, that's what kids do. They're just loud. And, and we got parents in our GC, and they're like, they're like shh, and I, I love it. I think it's great. You know, I love the kids running around screaming and, and, and stuff like that. And I don't get little kids because, you know, they got no appointments, they don't have anywhere to be, but they get up really early. You know, when they hit high school, you don't have that problem anymore. They don't get up at all. They just stay in bed all day. But, you know, Isaac now, he's like this little kid. He's, you know, two to four years old, some, somewhere in there. He's probably a lot of fun at this point. They, you get to potty train him, you know, throw that Cheerio in the toilet, aim at that, you know. It's a great way to potty train, right? So it's, it's a big happy party. It says, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. And so this is, this is Ishmael laughing. He's not laughing like everybody else at the party. This, in Galatians 4.19, tells you is a mocking laughter. He's making fun of Isaac as the son of the promise. Now, now why? He's angry, and he really kind of has a right to be. You know, for 13 years, he believes he is the son of the promise, and now he feels like a second-class citizen in this. And this is, I mean, really, this is like an intro to a bad episode of Cops, right? Trailer door swings open, and you got the wife and her baby and the girlfriend and her baby from the same guy. You know, it's what you're going to do when they come for you. You know, it's, it's just bad, bad news here. And so Ishmael, again, is angry, and you can see the problem why in the middle of this. And the issue came about because of their sin, and now Sarah lives with, uh, you know, his husband's girlfriend and her son. Now, commentators differ on the interpretation of Is- Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. You know, one kid's two to four, one's between 15 and 18. Some say it's verbal. It's mocking like he's a bully. Others say the, the word can refer to beating or physical harm. Sarah's 95 years old. She waits all this time for a kid. And now some other one's smacking him around, making him cry. It's not good. It says, so she said to Abraham, <laughs> you read the text. I, I think this is hilarious. Like, Abraham! Right? You know, what, what mom is like, oh, Abraham. I, it, seriously, she's screwed. Take care of this! Whatever, okay. <laughs> I got a mom. I know how it went. All right. It says, cast out this slave woman. Doesn't even use her name at this point. With her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Get rid of that girlfriend and her kid. And this is hypocrisy because Sarah is the one who set this up in the first place. Now, earlier in Genesis, Ishmael is called a wild donkey of a man. That means he's like ADD, HHDD. He's just got a lot going on. He's declared war on his brothers. I mean, he's, he's angry. He's a hunter. He kills wild game. He's very strapping. Sarah might have good reason to worry a little bit. Verse 11, it says, And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. The word son there in the Hebrew refers to Ishmael. He's, Abraham's not happy about this because he's being forced to choose between these two boys that he loves. This is the consequences of sin on children. But in the end, this is God's story, and God speaks and begins to take care of things. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Don't fret. It's my story. You sinned. I'll take care of it. I'll be gracious. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, so he's the son of the promise. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also. Why? Because he is your offspring. 
And so what can next be seen is either an act of great faith or an act of cowardice or being really mean. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning. This is before anybody else got out of bed and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, this doesn't mean that she only got bread and water and he sent her off. He probably could have given her some animals and all this because it's early in the morning, so nobody saw what he was doing as he sent her off. Kind of tells her where to go, go to the desert of Beersheba. And there's a lot of commentators who also believe throughout the rest of Abraham's life, he still went to visit Ishmael. He may have been an absent father, but he still went to visit him and didn't leave him totally alone. but you got to look at Hagar. Okay, Hagar at this point now becomes a homeless single mom, no income. It looks a lot like today. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under the one of the bushes. This means he's now sick. He's probably dehydrated in this. And child can mean young man. Uh, then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And, and she sat opposite him and she lifted up her voice and wept. So you got a homeless, broke, single mom, sobs far enough away so her son can't hear her. Now, I will tell you this. In growing up, my mom was a single mom. And we had times growing up where my mom was kind of like in these straits. And I don't think she ever saw, but I saw when she would cry at times because we didn't have any money, didn't know where food was going to come from. Christmases, you know, were really tough for her, very hard moments because there's nothing to be able to buy presents with. In this story, something wonderful happens. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. Now, do you know what Ishmael means? It means God hears. God hears. So God, this is part of his name. God hears the voice of this boy, again, because it's God's story. God hears the cry of the oppressed. I'm sure you heard my mom when she was crying as well. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God. Now, I'm going to take a stop again here. When you, in the scriptures, when you read an angel of God, that's usually an angel that comes down and you know, talks, you know, Gabriel, Michael, somebody like that. When it says the angel of the Lord with this definite article, it almost always exclusively refers to a theophany, to Jesus actually coming down. The angel of the Lord, definite article. See, Jesus loves people who believe. He loves people who don't believe. It doesn't mean that everybody is saved, but he loves everybody anyway. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. This doesn't mean, oh, he's dehydrated. Lift him up. It's going to fix it. What, what this is a euphemism. It means take my hand, trust me, walk with me in the midst of this, for I will make him into a great nation. And this is exactly what God does. He makes him into a great nation. What you have to see is the hopelessness of Hagar, the hopelessness of Abraham, and yet the goodness of Jesus. Verse 19, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now, did God just put the well there, and it's a miracle it showed up, or was it always there? It was always there, right? First service, someone said, doesn't matter, right? I, think, I actually think it does matter in the midst of this because it's right in front of her. She didn't see it. This is important for us to also understand that God always does provide. Many times we just don't see it because we get so self-consumed. We think it's our story. It's all about us. So we don't see the provision God has placed right in front of us. Jesus essentially says, look up from yourself. Stop being blinded by your self-centeredness. There's a fresh spring of water nearby. His name is Jesus. And it's interesting, in Islam, not only is Ishmael an ancestor to Muhammad, not only did Mecca then get decreed in this general vicinity, but Muslims on a pilgrimage to Mecca will go, going to the Hajj, they'll pass this well. And this is still considered a holy site. They say, this is where God came down. This is what's called the, the well of the spring of Zamzam. Here, here's a picture. This is, this is the most holy place in Islam. That's the Hajj in the middle. And right there is the well of Zamzam. And so you pass by it. Here's another picture of the well of Zamzam. 
Okay? And to this day, it still actually produces water, even, even to this day. It's actually quite amazing. And what they will say is this is where God came down so that we could be the nation that we are. God provided for us. And I say praise God. But I think the greatest sadness in all of this is that they don't recognize that the God who came down to give Ishmael water was Jesus. That's who it was. I mean, I have no problem with anybody thanking God for all the provision, but I want them to thank who actually did it, and that's Jesus. Verse 20, And God is with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So his mother goes and gets an Egyptian wife for him. She's probably got all kinds of weird pagan beliefs, and you got you know, Ishmael who's grown up for you know, 15 to 18 years learning about the God of Abraham in the midst of this. And you know what happens when guys get paired with you know, hot, weird girls? They get all weird, too, because they don't want to leave. They just kind of want to follow, and so you get all this intermingled. Now, uh, Beersheba, eventually in this desert, actually gets down farther to the region of Saudi Arabia. I brought my, I'll show you a map. This is a modern-day map. I brought my laser pointer, stole it from my cat. I know you're interested. Okay, so this is Israel up here. So this is where she would have started. This essentially, right down in this area, is the region of Beersheba. And all the way down here, see this right here? This is Mecca. This is where the well is. So if she actually made this trek, this is, this is over 1,000 miles that she makes it down there. I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing. And what you have eventually is thousands of years later, after Ishmael, you have a descendant of Ishmael comes along named Muhammad. And he has bits and pieces of the story and puts it again. Because, again, Ishmael would have been taught about the God of Abraham. He would have known this. And when Muhammad comes along, he cannot believe that Isaac is the son of the promise and not Ishmael because Ishmael, again, was the firstborn. And so what he does is he reworks the story. He doesn't, and, and he doesn't make the story about Abraham. He makes the story now all about Ishmael. The story is not about God. And so whenever you make the story about a person, not about God, the story begins not to make so much sense. He makes a new religion. The religion is called Islam. It means to surrender. It's essentially, if you look really at it, it's a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Egyptian, a little bit of something else kind of all mixed in together. But it all goes back to Abraham going to bed with two women. I mean, you've got to be clear, in our modern-day guy-focused society, and you, and you look at you know, all, all of our sitcoms today, it's like, oh, yeah, one guy, two, two women. That's a fantasy. No, that's a nightmare. Today, this is still a nightmare. Arabs look at this again and say, Ishmael was born first. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Therefore, he should be the son of the promise. According to the cultural things of this day, he should be the son of the promise. But the story is not about Ishmael. The story is about God's story, and God in sovereignty chose Isaac because God has the right to do what he wants. All authority is his. In two weeks, we will look at the, at the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Uh, those in Islam believe that that sacrifice wasn't Isaac, it was Ishmael because he was the son of the promise. Now, through Isaac, eventually comes Jesus and, and Christianity. And many times Christian comes in, Christians come in, they side with Jews, and they say, oh, we hate Muslims. And this is important for the culture we live in today because there's a lot of stuff in our world going on with this. How should Christians treat Arabs and Muslims? How should we do it? Exactly, just like Jesus did. Jesus shows up and offers grace and kindness and mercy and wisdom and takes care of them. Now, there is a point where oppression and violence needs to be stopped, and we do have to stop in there and do that. But I'll tell you, there's other places in the world where Christians are doing horrible things, people who claim to be Christians anyway, and we should step in and stop that as well. You see, one reason I think a lot of Muslims hate us so much is we treat them the same way Sarah treated Hagar or the way Ishmael was treated by Abraham and Sarah. What would the world have been like if Abraham didn't go to bed with someone not his wife? The whole world would be completely different. And what fills our headlines today starts right here in Genesis. And we need to treat them just like Jesus 
did. And this then takes us, which I talked about last week, to Act 4. Act 4 is Jesus. All last week we spent talking about this. Everything God does in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 has all been leading to reaches its culmination, climaxes, Jesus says, in me. Jesus is the point of the story. You should really listen to last week if you missed it so you can all bring this together. Because out of Act 4, God has graciously, graciously given us Act 5. One of the GCs, I guess, got together and said, no, what do you think Act 5 is? And they had all these ideas, and then I told the leader of the GC, and he goes, okay, we're all wrong. Okay, well, that's, that's great. Uh, act 5 comes out of Act 4. Act 4 is the point, but Act 5 is like the prologue. It's like the little scene after the credits in the Avengers, you know, the little scene at the end, but it's a long scene, this is. And so Act 5 is the church. That's the church. Okay, what's happening in Act 5 right now is simply unbelievable. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he ascends to the Father, sends his spirit, and then sends his followers out on mission to the world to say the good news about God's redemption. It is just like God came to Abraham, like he came to Hagar, like he comes to Ishmael. This is the idea that God comes to his people. See, God's love for everything he started in Act 1 that got messed up in Act 2, that you get to Act 3 and God announces initially to a particular group in a particular culture in a particular context in a particular point in time has now come to the culmination of Act 4. And out of Act 4, it has burst beyond the boundaries of any country and any ethnic group. And it's going out to every culture and every nation by Act 5 through God's people. And I started trying to help you get you guys to understand this, the authority of Scripture and how this all fits together. It all means God's story to, to understand this so our lives actually make sense in light of his story. And to understand the Scripture and what God's doing, you've got to relate it to now, what's going on now. You don't, not Act 1, not Act 2, not Act 3, but the culmination of Jesus in Act 4, which results in the position of Act 5. You have to know what the story is, where you are in the story. You're Act 5. You're the church. You are the ones that God is now sending out to the rest of the world to understand the message and the call of what God has been doing from the very beginning. And when people don't understand that, they think the Bible is a bunch of laundry list and commands, and they always misunderstand it. A while ago, a few years ago, there's a book came out by a guy named A.J. Jacobs. I don't know if any of you read it. It was called The Year of Living Biblically. This is, and this is the subtext of it. One man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. If you read it, the book itself is hilarious. It's funny. He spends a whole year of his life committed to obeying every command of the Bible as literally as he can. So he lives in New York City. He eats kosher, grows a beard, dresses like Moses. The Old Testament says, you know, stone Sabbath breakers. So he'd prowl around Central Park and look for Sabbath breakers. And he had, not full rocks, but he had pebbles. And he'd pelt people with pebbles. And then he'd lock around like, oh, I don't know what's going on. You know, and look the other way and stuff like that. Just so he didn't get arrested. It's absurd, right? But that's what he says the point of, of trying to follow the Bible literally. It's absurd. This is what he says. Millions of people say they take the Bible literally. A 2004 Newsweek poll put it at 55%. But my suspicion was that almost everyone's literalism consisted of picking and choosing. People plucked out the parts that fit their agenda. And so part of what he intended to try to show is no one can take the Bible literally. And, of course, lots of people, you know, do pick and choose, and that's a fair critique. And, again, it's a funny book on the, on the whole perspective. But I just want to tell you something. He's wrong. He's completely wrong. If you treat the Bible naively like a list of disconnected rules, like it's an owner's manual, you are precisely not taking the Bible literally. So you have to know the whole story and where you are and what God has been doing and where you are in it. Last week I gave you the example of World War II and Winston Churchill and all that. You know, towards the end of World War II, April 1945, the German army surrenders to the Allies. And, but the war was not over. Japan is still fighting, so the war is still going on. World War II is still going. 
you know, but the Germans, they surrendered. So now the Allied soldiers who've been fighting against Germany, who've been killing German soldiers, now go in and they begin to help rebuild Germany, all during the same war while it's still going on. Now imagine somebody years later looks back at World War II and they say, well, that's funny. Sometimes Allied soldiers, they would attack Germans and sometimes they would help Germans. They're just picking and choosing what they want to do. No, see, that's not literalism. That's stupidism because they're not looking at the whole story. You've got to look at exactly where it's at. See, we are in Act 5. We are not in Act 3. To read the Bible literally does not mean wooden-headed, non-metaphorical, unthinking naivety. It means you read it the way the author intended to mean it, and you assume that people who wrote this book, even apart from divine inspiration, were actually bright people. You know, Moses wasn't a guy that's like, oh, look at the burning bush. I'll go look at that. You know, that's, that's not what Moses was like. He's actually a very intelligent guy. See, in Act 5, you and I, we've been given a great and wonderful gift. This is called the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends the same Spirit to you and I that inspired the writing of the Scriptures. And now that Spirit illuminates the Scriptures so we can read them and we can understand them so they become a light for our past. This is called the doctrine of illumination. Two big doctrines. First one's called doctrine of inspiration. The scriptures are inspired by God. And the doctrine of illumination, the spirit illumines the scriptures so we can understand them and understand the whole story. Let me show you how this looks. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Okay? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, son of the promise, Hagar, Ishmael, provided for by Jesus, didn't know that it was him. Uh, Galatians 4, you know, you get you have Isaac, had a son, and a son, and a son, and a son, eventually leads to Jesus. You've got a guy named Paul, descendant of Abraham, becomes a Christian, leader in the early church, writes most of the books in the New Testament, and he picks up the story of Abraham, Sarah, uh, Hagar, Ishmael, and makes it very pertinent to you and I what the intent is and what was going on all along. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Paul says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman. Who's that? Hagar. Good, you're paying attention. And one by a free woman. Who's that? Sarah. But the son of the slave, who's that? Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. And so this means, you know, as a man and a woman, they get together, have sex, make a baby. Birds and the bees, 101, that's how it works. Uh, While the son of the free woman, who's that? Isaac. Isaac was born through the promise. This is a miracle. You've got a 100-year-old guy, 90-year-old woman, they make a baby. It's a miracle anytime it happens. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. He says it actually happened, but it's also, uh, you know, it's, it's also figurative, and so you can actually make a point to today. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, old covenant in the law, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, kind of referring to heaven. She she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Uh, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those, the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, referring to Jews, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And then the promise comes to all of us through the blood of Christ. But just as at the time uh, he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Quotes from Genesis. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let me explain to you what this means in case we just lost you in the middle of it. Paul says you look at these two women and you can actually learn about the Christian life from them. How? Doctrine of illumination. Okay, one represents your old life. Slavery, Hagar, where you're born by natural means. You're born as a slave to sin like Hagar was a slave in this family. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, I'm not a slave to sin. Great, awesome. Just stop sinning and prove me wrong. 
But I'll tell you, you'll probably just screw up before you even get out of the parking lot today because you know, that person pulled in front of me. And so, and so we're all born with this sin nature. We're all slaves of sin because we're all born in a natural way. You contrast that with those who believe. They become sons and daughters of the promise and are born in a supernatural way by the Spirit of God. In John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he calls us being born again. God does a miracle just like he gave a barren 90-year-old woman a baby. Because people are not born Christians. We are not born loving God. We're born slaves to sin. And yet God comes and offers us to have us be born again as a miracle. And we can live lives that are free and full of love and stop sinning. But new life begins by the miracle of the Spirit of God. He contrasts these two women. You can be born or you can be born again. On one hand, there's bitterness and hatred and, and angers toward others and gods because your story is all about you and it doesn't make sense. On the other hand, you can learn how to be truly be alive again by trusting God and understanding understanding his story. Paul says we're to live the new life. Jesus did not come and die and rise from the dead to get you out of prison so you can go back and lock yourself back in again. We have to separate ourselves from our old life. This means if, if maybe alcohol or drugs has a hold of you, what you need to do is you need to sever that relationship with those. If you've got, a, if you've got friends, who every time you're with them, they drag you back to places you do not need to be. You've got to sever those relationships sometimes. You know, if you're dating a guy or a girl and you're completely ungodly with them, you've got to sever those relationships sometimes. You don't let the baggage of your old life drag you back in. Sin is our problem. It doesn't need to be managed. You've got to get rid of it. And how do you get rid of it? This is where Paul talks about the doctrine of illumination. He says there's three options. He says... There's a Muslim option. This, the Muslim option is be a good moral person, make a pilgrimage to Mecca, visit a well. The problem is Ishmael is a sinner. His descendants are sinners. And they don't know the one that came to give them a drink was Jesus because the point of the story was Jesus that wasn't Ishmael. The second option is the Jewish option. Well, don't be a, you know, a person like Ishmael. Be one like Abraham's son, Isaac. Don't go to Mecca. Go to Jerusalem. It's the same thing. Isaac is wicked just like his old man. He's a sinner. His descendants are sinners. The only thing that being like Isaac and Ishmael gets you is like cuts in the line to hell. It's all it gets you. You're stuck in your old life, your old nature, your old sin. But God's answer, the scripture's answer is Jesus. Because it's not about Abraham's son Isaac or Abraham's son Ishmael. We've made it about those sons. But it is about God's son Jesus. He is ultimately the son of the promise. He is not just son of Abraham, he's the son of God. And the hope is not to be a Jew, a Muslim, or the hope in a nation like Israel. The hope is in Jesus Christ. And God not only spoke, he came down as a man to identify and to redeem us. The hope is not in Judaism and morality and Isaac. The hope is not in Islam or Ishmael or pilgrimages. Our hope is in Jesus and for some reason, today we live lives that are caught between these two boys, and our lives need to be caught up in Jesus. That's the point. God wants to liberate us from all of this type of bondage. And God is very good at the impossible, even the impossibility of saving us. Genesis 18:14. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer to that is no. This sets up all that comes. See, Sarah didn't think God could take care of her and actually give her a baby. Hagar didn't think God could take care of her in the wilderness. And throughout history it goes. And it comes to you and I today. And we don't think God can actually take care of us. And so we make it about Isaac. We make it about Ishmael. And it's not about either one of them. And if we could actually get that and understand that, there would be so much stuff in our world that would go away because we'd make it about what the story was about. And that's Jesus. And I'll tell you, you may today be running around going, well, God can't really take care of me. Yes, he can. 
Yes, he can, because he is good enough to save you because it's his story. The authority lies in him. And Jesus comes and lives for us and dies for us and rises for us and offers us new life. That's the promise. Nothing is too hard for this God. And you must believe that because it will change how you live your entire life. You must trust Jesus and his authority and his promise revealed in Scripture. We worship the God of Abraham. And nothing is too hard for this Lord, not even me, not even you. And this is why every week we bring you to the place of communion because it reminds us and resets us of what Jesus has done because the story is about him. That's why you take that cracker and you break it and like his body is burned for us and you dip it in the wine of the grapes, you just remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we get to be this people who can live this new life again. This life that isn't about one of these boys. This life that isn't about ourselves. This life that is actually what it was meant to be about. Jesus. Period. The band's going to come up and play a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, we invite you for prayer. There'll be some elders and deacons in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, maybe you've been in a spot in your life where you've made the story all about yourself. Well, you know what? Go and pray with them. They'd love to direct you where it's supposed to be. Maybe you made the story about somebody else. You know, maybe, maybe you've made it about Isaac or Ishmael or made it about, I don't know, your neighbor Fred down the street. I don't know. All right? The story's about Jesus. And so go and pray with them. They love to pray with you about that. Uh, there's offering boxes in the side wall in the back. We give because God gives so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we offer you that opportunity every single week. Um, and then there's some food and stuff in the back. I don't know if there's any. This morning somebody made macaroons. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a macaroon. They're like the glory of God in your mouth. Okay? But somebody made these things and they put them back there. And, and I had one. And I got like the sugar high in first service and I crashed. But we're done now, so you can have one. It'd be great. You're good. <laughs> uh, and the reason that we do actually throw food back there is for the purpose to help you guys get together because in understanding where we are positionally in Act 5 because of what Jesus has done, we do this together. It's not an individual thing. It's not like, oh, God saved me and that's it. It's all of us together moving forward as the church, showing the whole world what God's redemption is supposed to be, where we don't have these divisions between us because we are focused on Jesus and not ourselves and not our own stories. It's him and his story, period. That's the point. So we do this together. Help you guys, you know, maybe you're mad at somebody. Well, throw a cookie in your mouth. Stop talking, you know. Whatever. You get together and move forward like God calls us to. Because our God is good and he is gracious. And as soon as we understand the stories about him, everything makes so much more sense. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as your people would understand that the story is not about us. And it's not about all the little things that we try to make it about. The story is about you. And that we would live lives in humbleness before you, understanding the fullness of not only what you've done, but what you actually continue to do in the lives of your people. And that you have called us to be a people who show the entire world what it means to really follow you and your son. That all these divisions that we want to raise between ourselves and others have no purpose for being there at all. Because all those divisions are stories that are not about you. Have us understand how you have saved us and what you've gone through to do that and make us a humble people that understand that when we look at ourselves there's nothing in ourselves that would make you have to come and save us it's simply your goodness that does it and that just again points to the whole fact that it is your story that you as a God 
save us and redeem us even from ourselves. So today, change us, have the walls come down that we have thrown up around us so that our focus becomes you and your son, that the whole world may know the glory of who you are by how your children live their lives, fully reflecting the gospel and what it was truly meant to be and how it was truly meant to be lived and how it was reflected in your children. As we live lives that point to you as our great God. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.